Can we do that at the invitation, that song, that last one you just did? Awesome. I think that would be a great song to do. And uh, I love the message of that song. Um, I love the message of all of our worship this morning. But uh, that song is just a powerful thing to talk about, the idea that, that we can worship, we can glorify Him for who He is. And uh, this morning, uh, you notice in your bullets in there, there's a small handout. Um, hopefully, uh, you find that as beneficial if you're a note taker. If you're not a note taker, um, then just don't even worry about it. But if you are a note taker and you like to take notes, uh, I wanted to give you that. And uh, someone told me this morning that they enjoy that. So um, I try to do those every now and then. So maybe we'll do some more uh, in the next couple of months here. Uh, but I want you to be able to write some things down this morning. Uh, because as you go through the morning and we talk about all this information, I genuinely hope that through the week, you go home, you get into your devotional life, your quiet time, and you're spending time with the Lord, and you're searching these scriptures. You're, you're kind of breaking apart these passages as well, and you're seeing the Word of God come to life in your own life. And uh, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. So these notes, um, I know, does anybody, is anybody willing to admit that their Bible can become kind of like a filing cabinet, and you just stick stuff in there every Sunday? Anyone willing to admit that? Okay. You can't point at someone else, though. Like, so you can't be like, okay, that's not okay. Okay. Uh, that's why I like using my iPad for my Bible, because I, have, I can't do that. Like, if I open my cover up and there's stuff there, I'm like, hey, I can't see my screen. Uh, but my Bibles that I do have in my office, uh, for a long time there, I would find bulletins from like six years ago. And I'm like, what, what is this even doing in there? Because um, you just shove it in your Bible. So if it's like a gift card or a, you know, pastor creation card or a birthday card, those don't seem to stay in there as long as the bulletins, but maybe the bulletins stay a little longer for a reason. Um, but if you have your notes, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. And as it says there, uh, we're going to kind of walk through the amazing I am statements of Christ while he was on earth. Uh, now, I was accused this last week of going to a certain gospel more than other gospels. That I would go to this gospel just because it's the gospel of John. And someone said to me, man, it seems like every week you're going to the gospel of John. And I told them what I'm going to tell you. I said, I can't help it that I just happen to be named after one of the most intriguing Gospels, in my opinion. So saying all of that, open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And uh, we're going to look at a few verses here. Um, all of these I am statements that we're going to look at, uh, as you see in your notes there, they're all from the Gospel of John. So we're going to stay in John. So when you look at your notes, you're going to see, once you get to like uh, letter A, letter B, it doesn't have chapter, it just says a verse number. That verse number is because it's all in the book of John. Okay, just so you guys have an understanding of why we did it that way. And so this morning, you're already there, you're turning there. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 56. John 8 and verse 56. And I want to explain a little bit about what Jesus means when he says this. And we'll talk a little bit about some of these other statements through this morning. And hopefully we'll get through all seven. Um, there are seven I am statements and we'll get through all seven. If we don't this morning, we'll pick it up next week. Uh, but I think we'll be fine. So look at verse 56. It says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So now this is an amazing statement of Jesus Christ, an amazing moment of a truth-telling moment for Jesus. Look at verse 57. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Now, by the way, Abraham, right, some of you guys remember this, he's way back in Genesis, starting Genesis chapter 12. Okay, he comes on the scene right after the Tower of Babel. 
If you guys remember the story, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is an amazing read. If you spend a long, long time, maybe like junior church or VBS, since you were a kid that you've read those chapters, go back, look at Genesis 1 through 11. Powerful stuff going on there. Everything from creation to the fall to the flood to all other kinds of things, all the things going on through all of that with Noah, and then obviously the Tower of Babel and all that goes on there. It's just an amazing few chapters. So read that this week if you haven't read it in a while. But when Genesis chapter 12 opens up, we get introduced to this guy named Abraham. And what's amazing is real quick Bible history. We're going to kind of condense this down, 30-second Bible history review. The story goes like this. God created, man sinned, God judged, gave grace, man sinned. God judge, gave grace. Okay, just kept happening over and over again. When you get to the Tower of Babel, all of these people were supposed to go out and fill the earth. I think it's amazing that God gave us this creation and he gave us this world. And then he says, now go fill it, right? Go out and fill this thing. Go enjoy the earth I've given you. I think it's weird that we don't really even enjoy sometimes what he's given us. We get so caught up in life, we're not really enjoying this creation. Do you realize he didn't have to make it look like this? He didn't have to make it as majestic and beautiful as it is. He didn't have to give us all these blessings in creation, but he chose to. When you walk out, like this morning, it was a little chilly this morning. I took the dog out for a walk, and I walk out, and it was about 35, my little thing by the door said. And I was like, that's cold. I don't like that, uh, but I walk out anyway. And, and when that sun hits your face, and you just feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, he didn't have to make it like that. But he allowed it that way so we could feel that moment of that sunlight and just say, man, praise God for that. I mean, do you see how you could really praise him for even the simplest things? And do we, I mean, are we in that habit of doing that? Do we do that on a consistent basis? If not, I encourage you to do so. So this is going on here and all these things are happening. God wants the earth to be filled. Well, with the flood, what happened? The earth got filled, but filled with what? Sinners, right? And that wasn't his design. So he sends the flood. He gets Noah, puts him in the boat. Story goes on. They come out of the boat. He says to, to Noah the same thing he said to Adam. Here, go therefore multiply, fill the earth, right? Go do this thing. I told Adam to do it. He did it, but it didn't really work out well because they were full of sinners. You're going to do it. By the way, Noah wasn't perfect. He sinned right off the boat. I mean, the guy gets off the boat and sins. It's like, wow. Like you're the one, you were the one guy that God was like, you're going to be my man. And he sins instantly. So anyway, so this is going on. The earth is starting to be replenished, but guess what they're not doing? They're not filling the earth. They're all staying localized and they start building this city. And then they build this Tower of Babel. And many people think, oh, that was a tower to reach heaven. Because it says a tower unto heaven. It wasn't trying to get to heaven. They don't want to get to heaven. They're in rebellion. They don't want God. So what was the tower for? It's just like the Sears Tower in our, in our country today. Like the Sears Tower in Chicago. It's a tower to display our greatness. I mean, look what we've built. Look how great we are. So they said, let's stay together and build this city so that we can be great. And God says, man, I'm not against you building a city, but I'm against you being rebellious. Go and fill the earth. So God sends a multiply of languages, kind of distributes this language among everybody. Now nobody can understand each other. The Bible says that he then dispersed them. I literally believe that he picked up one group of people and plopped them in the middle of the Amazon jungle and said, okay, you're this people now. And he plopped this group of people and said, you're going to go over here. I really believe he actually did that. I don't think that we just walked there. Okay, I believe God can go, if, I can, if he can create language, he can move us. He, we don't have to walk there. You guys remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? It says that Philip was taken up in a whirlwind and dropped off. I think God can do that if he wants to. 
It's amazing. Even in uh, the Bible, New Testament says that God sets our boundaries, sets our habitations, the Bible says. So God does this, and he plops these people all over the place. He's starting to fill the earth because we didn't do it, so he's doing it for us. And then Genesis chapter 12 opens up, and here's Abraham. And Abraham's got one job, to lead the children of God, the children of Israel, to go tell the rest of those people about that loving God. And in Genesis chapter 12, with Abraham, he is the first missionary. He is the first true missionary, or the first start of that mission line, to go out now and reach those people groups. And from Genesis chapter 12 all the way until Jesus, the mission was the same. Go and reach. Go and reach. Go and reach. The story of David and Goliath is not so that you can know that you can conquer giants in your life, although God can do that. But that's not the point of the story. It's not so that, so that Vic or, or Terry can go, man, God, I know that I can conquer this giant because you gave David the strength to do so. That's not the real point of that story. The point of that story is David said, is there not one God? Is there not a God of Israel? And this guy's mocking our God. It was a mission story. It was all about displaying who God really is. And so when Abraham is mentioned here, he is a great figure. He's the father of the Jews. He is the guy, the man, that when he says his name, they're instantly going back to Genesis chapter 12. Why would I even bring all that up? Because I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 12. I want you to be there when Jesus says this. I want you to realize what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, that guy that lived thousands of years ago, I saw him. I've had a conversation with him. I've spoken to him. He says that he saw my day and was glad. You notice that he's speaking in the past tense? Saying he saw it back there. I know because I was there when he saw it. And then he says, and he was glad about it. The Jews are confused. They're like, whoa, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. How can you speak of Abraham as though you know him? Because we know it's been a long time since he was here. Verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Again, remember, verily, verily is basically saying, listen, listen. This is very important. Uh, it's not quite, that's verily, not the best verily, translation. It's like an amen at the it. beginning. I've said it before. Maybe. Amen means so let it be or so shall it be. Verily, verily is saying what I'm going to say is going to happen. It needs to happen. It needs to be understood. Okay, so it's kind of like an amen at the beginning. Verse 58, Jesus saith unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was... I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself, which I find utterly amazing that he can decide to hide himself. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. He didn't disappear. He didn't just vanish. He somehow hid himself in a way that he walked right through the crowd and they didn't even notice. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know what that exactly means. But I know Jesus did it because it tells me he did. When you read this, I want you to see a couple key things here. Jesus makes a proclamation to these religious leaders. It's an amazing back and forth between Jesus and these religious leaders. Now this I am that we just read, you're going to notice that in your notes, it's not included in the seven I am statements. It's not considered part of those statements, and here's why. Because in this moment, the other I am statements relate to the power of Christ in our salvation and in saving us and what that brings into our lives. You're going to notice that the, the conversation with the woman at the well, when he says, she says, I believe that Christ is coming, and he says unto her, I am he. A better translation is he just says, I am. 
that's not in your list because that's not one of those seven I am statements. These statements we're going to look at is where Jesus says, I am this, and compares that to the beauty of what we find in salvation. He's using an illustration to show us what he has given us in salvation. It's an amazing back and forth. It's an amazing moment here. And I want to start here because I want us to see the truth of that, but I also want us to see what Jesus meant and why the Jews reacted the way they did. So you have your Bibles. We're going to go to a couple other verses really quick. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. And some of you are going to know this, so you know we don't necessarily have to go here, but I want to go here together, and I want to look at this together. Exodus 3 and verse 4. What an amazing moment this is. Study the whole chapter, obviously. Um, there's a lot going on here between Moses and God and this conversation they're having. Um, and I don't want to go into all the details of it, but I want you to see verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, unto him, and he said here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither. He goes through all this whole conversation. Go all the way down to, let me find it here. Gotta find it. Okay, verse 14. Verse 14. So this conversation is starting. Verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am that I am. Say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Go all the way over to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We're going from almost the beginning of the book all the way to the back of the book. Revelation chapter 1. Again, thank you so much for bringing your Bibles this morning, looking into the Word of God here, and I pray it's an encouragement to you. See, Jesus says, I am. He says that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. Go all the way back to Exodus. We find that God identifies himself as the I am. And then go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. And this is Jesus again speaking here. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I mean, do you see the power in this verse? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. You see, when, when Jesus is speaking here, I want you to understand that what he's saying, he's saying, listen, I'm not just was, I'm not just am, I'm always going to be, this is me, this is what I am. I am God. Jesus proclaimed himself, and you see it in your notes there, as the self-existent one. He is self-existent. He needs nothing outside of himself to be sustained. He is almighty. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace, all of those titles. He is the I am God. There was nothing before. There will be nothing after God. God is all and all, and he is the I am. Jesus said to these Jews, I am. And instantly they took up stones and they desired to kill him for his great blasphemy. You see, these Jews, when he said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, they instantly understood what he was saying. There was no confusion. 
There was no doubts. There was no, well, maybe he means it. No, they knew he just called himself God. That's blasphemy. And now we're going to kill him for that. And so this morning, I think we should see Jesus Christ as nothing less than God. As the I am. He precedes all things. Colossians says that we're for all things were created for him and by him. And all things hold together are sustained by Jesus Christ. He is everything. Amen. He is everything. He is the I am. And I want us to see that this morning, not as just a name or another name of God. Just another name of God. I want us to see the value in that name. The, the, the amazing truth that he is the I am. I mean, how amazing is our God that he needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from humanity. He is self-existent, self-sustaining. And my little brain doesn't get it. And all I'm left with is just to, in awe and wonder, say, you're amazing. I mean, we're just left to praise him and just honor him. And then we think sometimes that he needs something for us. We think sometimes that he, need, he needs our counsel on things. Here, God, let me tell you how to handle the situation. Now, so many Christians spend so much of their prayer time telling God what he should do. I'm not saying we don't ask God to do great works and pray and for healing and all that. I'm all for that. But you got to put something on understanding here. It's his will be done. Don't spend your prayer time counseling God, telling God what he should be doing or what he should know or what, how he should act. You're not the I am. He is the I am. You're not self-existent. So instead of counseling God, let's just get on the same page with God and say, God, whatever you want, I'm all for Whatever you want to do, let's do it together. I'm all for it. I want to look at these seven statements this morning. I want to look at this idea of what did he mean when he was saying all of these things. The key point is that he was saying he was God. But how does that relate to us in salvation? How do we see that practically in and through salvation? The first I am statement we're going to look at this morning. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. First one you know, it's the bread of life. John 6, 35. John 6, 35. My brain kind of went back to youth group moment there, and I actually almost said, does anyone want to read that? But we won't do that this morning. And 6, 35 says, Laura. No, I'm just kidding. Um, John 6, 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. This is an illustration based on the miracle going all the way back again to the Old Testament of the manna in the Old Testament. It came down from heaven and gives life to the children of Israel. You see what's amazing about this illustration, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on each one. We're just going to kind of hit one for a little bit and then move on. But I want you to see in this point, this moment... He says, listen, this bread of life is coming down from heaven just like the manna did. And you know what the children of Israel had no control over? If it ever came. Right? They had no control over that. They had no control over making the bread come down. Every morning they got up and by faith they had to believe it's going to be there. It's going to be there. God said he's going to take care of us. It's going to be there. 
every morning by faith. And my question to us this morning is, what if we had to live that way this morning? What if you woke up in the morning and every cupboard was bare, every refrigerator, deep freezer was empty? There was literally nothing in the house. Some of you have teenagers. You would be like, this is normal. This is not unusual. This happens every week. My mom would open the fridge and just go, I just bought $100 worth of groceries. Where is it? And then we'd come in behind her and be like, I'm hungry. What's to eat? Yeah, that was anger. We usually saw at that point. Anger, violence, aggression. Those things would come out during that moment. As you think about this, though, this idea... Every, what if you had to wake up this morning and just say, God, give me something to eat today. I'm praying for bread. And then before you open your cupboard, you're just, God, by faith, I believe it's there. And you open your cupboard, and it's there. You guys have heard the story. They couldn't even keep it. They couldn't keep it over. God said, no, Jesus I want said, every morning well, that was just Old Testament. Jesus said, here's the model prayer. Ask for daily bread. So many of us, as I said before, we're saving up bread. We're not going to eat for 40 years. And then we pray, oh God, supply my need. And he's going, I'd love to, but you don't have any. Because you've become pretty self-reliant. Every day they had to wait by faith. And there's nothing different than with the Messiah. You see, a few thousand years after Genesis and the promise that was given to Adam and Eve of a Messiah coming, Jesus, the bread of life, finally came down from heaven. And you know what? The same way they received that manna is the same way we receive Jesus Christ, by faith. It is by faith that I am filled with Jesus' bread of life, that he is the bread of life. It's by faith that we partake of that miracle every moment. I want you to see this morning that he is that bread of life that came down from heaven. Secondly, and again quickly, he has also said, he, is our, he says, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 12. So we see he is the bread of life, but secondly we see that he is the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 12 says this. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He says, I am the light of the world. This, is, this comment, if you're reading the chapter, you might kind of wonder why it's there. And can I ask you something real quick, or kind of encourage you something real quick? When you're reading scripture and you read a verse that seems kind of like out of place, like what's the deal with that? Don't just keep reading. Well, I'm sure it makes sense. Jesus said it. I'll just keep going on. No, stop. Look into it. Start doing a little research on it. Study it out and go, why is this here like this? And if you're reading the whole chapter, you know this is right after the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And in all of this whole discourse, Jesus then says, I am the light of the world. And you may think, okay, what, what does that have to do with anything? Why did he even go there? Well, go back up to verse 2. Go back up to verse 2. I want you to see this. This is so cool to me. This is the word of God is amazing. Verse 2, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Now I want you to notice something there in that verse. And if you're not really paying attention, you might have missed it. Early in the morning, it says. So picture this for a moment. Some of you are early risers. Who likes to get up and watch the sunrise? Who enjoys doing that? 
Who is like me and is like, like shocked when the sun's actually up when we get up? And you're like, wow, okay, that's cool, yeah. I like to sleep in like 10 o'clock, you know. Sun's still up, cool, I can get up now, okay. I don't like waking up at the sunrise, though. That's kind of weird. But it is beautiful when you do it. Um, I prefer to sleep in. But anyway, um, it's beautiful when you get up and you see the sun kind of coming in the windows. And you see that sunshine kind of cascading over the fields and over the, the buildings. And it's just a beautiful thing. And I want you to picture for a moment, these Jews are there and he's there and the sun is coming up and the sun is kind of coming over the, the, the scenery there, kind of cascading over the people. And then Jesus looks at that moment and says, I am the light of the world. He's saying, listen, that sun that you feel touching the skin, warming the skin, that sun that you see that is so majestic and beautiful and wonderful, says, I am the light of the world. See, in this this passage here, Jesus is comparing himself to the physical sun or the physical light, but also in that moment to God as well. You see, the Jews saw the sun as a symbol of God. As Jehovah God, and some references there are on your notes there, Psalm 84.11, Malachi 4.2. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but look them up. In those passages there, the Jews saw the sun as a symbol of God. They didn't worship the sun. They, they worshiped the God that created the sun, and they saw that as an image of him. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's not just saying, I'm like this light bringing this in. He's saying, I am God. I am the center. I am everything. I am the source for everything. Warren Worsby said it this way, There is for our universe only one sun, and it is the center and the source of life. So there is but one God who is the center of all and the source of all life. See, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am like that sun. I am, I am in the center of it all. I am the source of all life. And when you realize that, you will receive my light. And when you receive this light, you will receive life. Because I'm giving you life and you need to receive it and understand that when you walk in my light, when you're living in my light, you will be not in darkness. You will not be bound by blindness and darkness and confusion because you have the light of understanding, the light of knowledge, the light of Jesus Christ shining in you and through you, out of you and other people. Thirdly, Jesus says that he is, I am the door of the sheep. The door of the sheep. John chapter, John chapter 10 and verse 7. Look at it with me real quick. John chapter 10 and verse 7. Again, I know I want to encourage you. Uh, I was really debating about, should I have them turn to every single verse? And the Lord kind of just said, yeah, I want you to do that. I want you to see this with me. Too many times you go to church and you just shake your head yes at whatever the pastor says and you never even read it for yourself. I want you to look at it for yourself and see what the Bible actually says. Verse 7. Then said Jesus unto them, again, verily, verily. There's that phrase again we talked about a few minutes ago. I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. There it is again. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. This is an amazing, again, illustration to the Jewish people there, because honestly, in my opinion, and I don't know if you ever thought about this, this is one of the most beautiful illustrations of salvation. This is the most wonderful moments of explaining what salvation really, really is. You see, he starts this sermon with something everyone would understand in the crowd. In verses 1 through 6, he goes all and talks about this, this, this shepherd, these sheep, 
this fold of sheep. He's going through this whole illustration. And again, I don't know about you. Has anybody here had sheep? Like you've kept sheep and like had sheep? Anybody here? Me neither, okay? We had a team that had some sheep, and I thought that was kind of cool. Um, it was really weird, though, because I always thought the wool would be clean. I always think these white, fluffy little sheep. I went to this house one time to pick them up something, and the sheep were like filthy. It was really, I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. But he had sheep, and he said they were really stubborn, kind of dumb animals. And I thought, okay, Lord, I get now why you're kind of comparing us to them. You're saying, yeah, you're like sheep. You're not too bright. You kind of follow the crowd. You kind of do whatever's popular. Let's just go, okay? And you're kind of dirty. I mean, that's really the best illustration I can think of for, for us. And so when Jesus is using this illustration, every person in the audience in that community realized that's what he's talking about. And he's picturing this in their heads. But because we don't really live in that community or that culture at that time, I want to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. This kind of area where the sheep were kept was basically like a pen. Kind of think of a pen, but made out of field stones, very big field stones. So think of a, a, a side, a walled-in pen with one opening, one entrance. And everything else is covered by these field stones. Kind of large size, so the sheep can't get over them, but kind of larger size. And what the, the porter would do in this passage, the porter or even the shepherd, if it was just his sheep, they would actually lay across that opening. So think about that for a moment. You have this one opening, and they would lay across that opening so the sheep couldn't get out. But also, so that other things can't get in. I mean, do you see the image of Jesus there? That he's willing to lay across that opening and protect you and keep you, guard you. Nothing's getting in. Nothing's getting past him as far as that illustration goes for salvation. But in this culture at this time, there were those that tried to break into these pens and steal the sheep away. You see, if the porter was there for the night and he was guarding the sheep, there would be multiple herds of sheep in this pen. It was all different shepherds that owned them. And in the morning, the shepherds would come back and would go to the porter, identify with the porter. The porter would let him in. And then he would call his sheep. And guess what? Only his sheep would come. The porter could get right out of the way and stand with a wide opening. And the, the shepherd would lead his, only his sheep out. And then the other shepherd would come in and take his sheep out, all by the sound of their voice. I mean, that's amazing to me. And Jesus says, my sheep hear and know my voice. Why is it that the thieves and the robbers, and in this case we talk about that being Satan or even the world at times, why is it that they have to steal the sheep away? Because, see, the sheep won't follow unless it's their shepherd. So as a Christian today, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, as a Christian today, when you feel tempted to sin, that sin temptation, that flesh, that, that devil, he's got to steal you away because, voice not because go that's not the voice of your guy. shepherd. But when you surrender to that and you realize, I'm listening to his voice, what protection, what beauty is in that moment? You see, this idea here of this moment of salvation and explaining salvation, I want us to see that Jesus is our shepherd. And that Jesus is the one that comes and looks after us and cares for us and protects us. But there will be those that try to steal you away. There will be those that try to lead you astray. And in that moment, I want to encourage you. I want to beg you. Listen to the voice of your shepherd. Don't allow yourself to be carried away. But listen rather to the voice of your shepherd. The next point I want to make here is he goes on to say in that same chapter that he is, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Chapter 10 and verse 11. 
It says here, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So I'm not just a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I've proven that because I've given my life for the sheep. You know what that means? That if the shepherd was laying in the doorway and some wolves came along and killed the shepherd, he did that to save his sheep in an act to save the sheep that were behind him. And Jesus says, no, I went and I gave my life willingly for the sheep. I sacrificed my own life for you so that you can have eternal life. He says, I am the good shepherd. You can make a note there off to the side. This whole chapter 10 sermon is in response to what happens in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, we find out there was this man that was excommunicated from the synagogue, from the temple. He was, excomm- he was kicked out by the priests and by the leaders of the church, or at that time the temple. You see, those that kicked him out were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. But they were really not true or good shepherds at all. So Jesus does what only Jesus can do. And he went to the man and he encouraged him and he showed him grace and he loved on him. The word translated good means intrinsically good, fair, and beautiful. So Jesus is not just good because of what he does for us. He's good because he is by nature good and fair. He is the good shepherd because he gave everything for us. He gave his life for us so that we could find salvation in him. He put his life on the cross. What a wonderful song that Gary sang this morning. That he could have chosen any other way. He could have said, nope, I'm done. Nope, I'm calling for the angels. Nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to the cross. I refuse. But he said, no, I'm going to willingly humble myself as a servant and do whatever is asked of me by my Father, even going to the cross. He is the good shepherd. I think he is the great shepherd. He is everything to us. And without him, we would be lost, sinful sheep that would have no shepherd, just scattered abroad, getting picked off one after the other. But he has come and he has brought us salvation and protection and and, and guarded us from the wiles of the devil. I mean, what a beautiful illustration we see here for our salvation. A couple more and we'll finish up. The next one. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. 25. John chapter 11, verse 25. Many of us know what's going on here. Many of us know and understand that, that this is the deal with Lazarus. He's died. Martha's completely upset, heartbroken, and grieved. She is so heartbroken, she's actually mad at Jesus. And what's her beef? Why is she mad at Jesus? She's mad at Jesus because if you would have just come when I told you to. See, isn't that interesting? There's more counseling of God going on, right? Come on, God, I told you. If you, been, you could have been here, here. None of this would have happened. Don't you understand? And I can almost imagine Jesus behind, he identified with the sadness, but the joy. I mean, you're Jesus for a moment, and she's weeping, and she's complaining, and she's nagging you, and you're just sitting going, oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. Just wait. You're not even going to believe what I'm going to do. Just wait. And I think for us in our personal lives, sometimes we've got to just wait. Because, man, we're looking at God like, God, why are you doing this? And he's going, man, I can't show you yet, but just wait. It's coming. You're not even going to believe what I'm going to do. Just wait. 
Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, after talking about her brother rising again, and, and Martha goes instantly to the idea of the resurrection, and she knows her Bible. Uh, she knows what Jesus is meaning in some senses because of the resurrection, but she thinks that's all it means. Jesus said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Then I love this. He looks at Martha in a moment of grief and sadness and heartbroken. She says, do you believe this? Do you believe what I'm telling you? Do you believe what I'm saying here? By the way, he fulfilled that. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus Christ quickens us, means made alive. I mean, do you see how this stuff, he's speaking these things, these moments, but he's saying, just wait. Oh, just wait. Just wait till you see what I'm going to do through the cross. Wait till you see my resurrection. Wait till you see the Holy Spirit and what he's going to bring into your life. Just wait. I mean, but do you believe? I'm going to do something so amazing, your little brain is going to explode. It's going to be awesome. But do you believe? You know what the key in Ephesians chapter 2 is? How we're made alive, how we're quickened. By faith are you saved through grace. Or by grace are you saved through faith. But not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you believe that I can bring new life? That I can give new life even though you are dead? Verse 27, I love this. With tears in her eyes. Heartbroken. I mean, imagine this is your brother laying in the grave. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, Son of the Living, Son of God, which should come into the world. Do you see that? Do you see that he, she didn't say, Yeah, I believe you can rise him from the dead? Do you see that she didn't say, Yeah, I believe you can do this great miracle? Yeah, I believe that you can bring him back to life. She instantly goes bigger than that. She goes, oh, I believe so much more than just you could bring him back to life. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the Christ. See, sometimes we anticipate or want God to do a small thing. He's going, man, do you really believe who I am? I'm bigger than that. Man, you're asking me for this little thing. I'm so much bigger than that. Believe in who I really am and watch me work. The Bible says, it tells us that he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. That we're thinking, you, can, you can't imagine it and him not be able to do ten times that. Can we just stop for a moment and just think on that for a second? I mean, just really, I want you just right there where you are. Just, if you're distracted by something, just turn that off. Just think for a second. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask. Or think. Over and above. Super abounding. That's your God. That's the I am that we're talking about this morning. There is nothing you can imagine that he can't do a hundred times that. But man, why do we get so down? Why do we get so defeated? Why do we just give our victories away to Satan and to the world and to other people? Why do we put ourselves in bondage to other people and, and the things that they want to think about us and say about us? Why do we do, why do, we do that all the time? If, if he is our God, he is the I am, and all of us in this room this morning, we've all said amen to that, praise the Lord to that. He is the I am. But here's the key. When you walk out of these doors, he's got to keep being the I am. 
You can't stop being the I am just because you're not in church or because the situation doesn't look like you think it should. Man, some of you are going through some stuff right now that if you had to put it into words, you couldn't even express it. You need to be encouraged this morning. He says, I can do, can do, I can do it. All things, it doesn't matter. Impossible is not existent with God. You can't go to God with an impossibility because he breathes stars into existence that are greater than our imagination can even come up with. He's a star-breathing, life-giving God. That when you put your faith in Christ, you were dead, now you're alive. He completely made you new. That's your God. So guess what? Your checkbook problems, your health problems, your job problems, your home problems, your family problems, your kid problems. Your dog showing up at the